In the last episode, we looked at some basic terminology, and I set out all of that terminology because I needed to make sure that you understand the distinction between sex and gender as we apply it to the American South, really in this episode. In order to do this episode, I want to make sure we can set some realistic expectations from the start. I'd like to try to keep these podcasts to between something like 20 and 30 minutes. I haven't always met that mark, as you can probably see if you look back at some of the, uh, the prior episodes. Some of them have gone a little bit long, but uh, again, I try to keep them to about that target because that's about what most people will listen to with the podcast. So let's be realistic. I, I cannot possibly thoroughly cover all of the information on gender in the American South uh, since its inception. Instead, what I would like to do in this particular episode is just give a broad overview of that topic. I just want to give some general information, uh, some pointers that you could use for further reading, whether it be as a part of this class in our textbook, or as if you go to uh, other texts as well. There's a lot of information on this. A good sociology class, especially one centered on the American South, is going to spend a full 16 weeks talking about this topic and here I am trying to do it in something like 24 minutes and I've already used a minute and a half or so uh, just talking about what I'm going to do. So instead of, of going further with that, uh, what I want to do is just go ahead and jump in. So let's get started. In order to discuss gender roles in the American South, I'm going to do something pragmatic. I'm going to talk about white and black gender roles. I'm going to talk about male and female in each of those categories. Um, the reason is, is because these are very broad categories and they form a good part of the experience of people across the entire region. This unfortunately does exclude a great number of other individuals in the region. Um, in particular, where I'm located in North Carolina, there is a sizable Hmong population. And uh, that means that we're excluding the Hmong experience, even though the Hmong have uh, an important role that they play in uh, this area. But again, unfortunately, in order to tackle this subject in the time period that I'm allotted, um, I'm going to have to make some cuts. But I would encourage you, again, to think in terms of sex and gender and to think of you know, gender as the cultural performance and then think of gender identity and gender roles and so forth and so on. So again, a gender role is going to be the role that is expected uh, by a particular culture or society uh, for a uh, sex in order to manifest that into a culture, which again is what we would call gender. Okay, so let's, let's think about white male gender roles. Now, we've already done um, some history inside this podcast. We've looked at, for example, the economic structure of the entire South. And I argued at the time that if you want to understand uh, any particular culture, you need to understand the underlying economic framework of that culture. So let's jump all the way back to the colonial period. Uh, we have you know people like John Smith that are settling or that are exploring, I should say, um, the Chesapeake Bay region, and then you know it starts from that area and begins to leak downward into North and South Carolina and Georgia, and all of these colonies are founded for more or less the the same reasons. They are extensions of uh, the holdings that that were in the Caribbean. So you in the Caribbean you had you know large plantations, and then that idea starts to creep up into the Carolinas. And then you have you know, Georgia as a kind of penal colony and, and so forth and so on. So we have a lot of males arriving in this area looking for economic opportunities. Now, I want to emphasize that a lot of males are arriving in this area, right? And there's also a class distinction to that. There are um, the, the more upper class individuals who arrive. We can see this in John Smith's account of, uh, of the Jamestown colony. And then we have the sort of lower class individuals. And, and in that group, I would file uh, John Smith because John Smith is, uh, he constantly struggles to see himself in the same light as the other leaders of this expedition. So we have this class conflict that's taking place. And, and by the way, you can see that spill over into the plantation class as well. The, this concept of class from Europe does manifest in the Americas as well. So keep that in mind. But let's again go back to that. A lot of males are arriving, class aside, 
one of the one of the sort of resources, I guess, is what we could call it. Um, and I, I hesitate to call it that, but you know, this is I think how they would have seen it at the time. One of the resources that would have come with them would be women. And so a lot of these individuals are competing for the scarce resource of of women in order to be able to start their own families, which would have been seen as sort of obligation on their part. They need to go and start a family. They need to, you know, sort of set up shop, so to speak. They need to establish themselves and, and establish a business or or something of that sort. And so out of that grows this sense of almost like decorum. Rather than you know, competing with each other and you know, killing each other or what have you, there's this, this decorum that comes about. And that decorum eventually manifests as sort of the Southern genteel manners that, that comes out of both the class aspect that I've already mentioned, but it also comes out of you know, this, this desire um, not to kill each other because of a masculine sense of, of uh, uh, eye for an eye, but also at the same time, again, the, you know, this this idea of okay, well, let me be polite. Let me, you know, have these this idea of being a gentleman. All right, so that that gives you an overview of some of the background of the, the mannerisms themselves. But uh, let's divide this just one more time. One more time, we have the Scots Irish, as I mentioned before arriving in the mountains, and we have the English arriving on the coast. So that there are different senses of what is expected of a man in both of those cases. And again, that's a little bit divided along the sense of, of class, but it's also divided along the sense of background. Um, the Scots-Irish are going to be you know, people who have that strong sense of, of masculine honor. And we can still see that, by the way, in the mountains today. I would say that um, just as a thought experiment, imagine being in North Carolina and, you know, walking up to a guy in the mountains and, and punching him and walking up to a guy on the coast, like in, in Beaufort and punching him. Imagine the different reactions because you can see that those concepts are still alive and well, that, that sense of masculine honor up there in, in the mountainous regions. So, you know, we have that there along the coast. Again, there's a sort of genteel mannerisms and the large plantations that establish themselves and then the expectations um, to set up a family and to uh, to provide for that family. And by the way, that overlaps in both locations. There is an expectation that men are supposed to provide for their families. So if we're going to look at this overview, and I've made a mess of it, but the reason I've made a mess of it is because I want you to see all the various factors that go into talking about what I, I mean, somewhat should be very straightforward gender roles in this case. Uh, you know, white men are the ones who have power in um, all circumstances. There's that concept of patriarchy, but it's not a simple, straightforward thing. Uh, class distinctions, locations, uh, backgrounds, and so forth and so on. But nonetheless, again, men are supposed to provide for their families. They're supposed to be the face of the family in the world. So they, they should be able to go out in the world and, and present uh, decisions made by the family. The other side of that is that they are responsible for all of those decisions. So if a woman, for example, um, if a wife or a daughter or someone uh, were to accidentally burn down a building, the male is held financially obligated for that outcome because this is, this is not the woman's fault per se. It is the head of that family and that, that would be the male. So if we look at, you know, this time period and we look at how very strictly white men controlled, you know, their families and, and all the others around them. And again, we're still talking about the early colonial period. It is because they knew that they were financially obligated for those things. They also had, they, they knew that they had power and they jealously guarded that power. Okay, now I've, I've just expressed that they have all this power and that they're jealously guarding this power. Um, they used this power. Let's just go ahead and put it out there in a blunt way. They used this power in negative ways often. Uh, they would use it to suppress women. And we'll see that when we get to the religion section, even when women began to gain some sense of power or semblance of power uh, through the church, they quickly quashed it or the church had to adapt to the circumstances and, and uh, you know align themselves with white male desires and what have you. Uh, so yeah, they, they used it in that way. They also used it uh, ruthlessly to um, oppress the individuals who were slaves underneath them. But again, I'm just talking in very broad terms. We're talking more about plantations than we are up in the mountains. The mountains are a very different story. Um, the way I always like to express it is if you're on a plantation and you're white male and you earn, let's say, you know, something like 50 slaves, 
you might not know those individuals. You, you might just sort of have a sense of who they are and you might not know them by name. Whereas if you live in the mountains, um, you, you would know the individual who was your slave because oftentimes those, in, those people only had one or two. And so they're all linked together in that endeavor up in the mountains. Now, that's not to say that they treated them well, but they, they knew their names and they had to work with them. So, you know, it's a different type of environment. Again, I would encourage you to go and read more about this. Um, by the way, conversely, um, on, along the coast, uh, after the civil rights movement, we, we see more progress in that area than we do in the mountains. The mountains have sort of entrenched themselves into some of these ideas, and uh, they, there hasn't been much movement in that location as much as along the coast so that's you know getting into a more modern era but all right to come back to it then they're using this power and it is in awful ways to you know to oppress and suppress other people's voices but i want to point something out here because i don't want to just say oh you know it's that they're misusing this power um here's what i always present to students there is this concept of the perfect prison and it is called the panopticon and the panopticon is a round structure, and in the very center of it, there's a, a round room. And this round room has a one-way mirror, uh, and the, the mirror itself, the, the people inside each of the prison cells, so you know, imagine it like a, a wheel spoke. The hub itself, the, the axle itself, is where the guard is, and you know, that guard is behind one-way mirrors. And the mirrors face the prison cells, and the prisoners can see themselves in the mirrors, but they can't see the guard, but the guard can see them. Now, the prisoners are going to be in their cells and they might misbehave and the guard's going to yell at them, you know, hey, don't get away from that window. Hey, you know, what are you doing here? I, I see you digging on the wall or something like that. After a while, the prisoner is going to become somewhat paranoid and stop you know, doing things that the prisoner ought not be doing because the prisoner's never quite sure when the guard is looking at them. And once the prisoner internalizes that, then the prisoner no longer... Uh, has, I would say, free will to be able to do anything because the prisoner is constantly policing um, that prisoner's own behavior and the guise of what would the guard expect. Now, if we think about the American South and we think about the position that males are in, the tendency is to say, oh, males had all the power and they had you know, free will to do what they wished. But think about that for a second. Who's watching them? They're watching each other and the, you know they're sort of policing their own behavior. So if uh, a white male comes along in the situation and says, you know, I, I think that it's wrong what we're doing, we should probably adjust and change this, uh, this voice that speaks out in that situation. It's going to be quashed or it's going to be ridiculed or it's going to be run out of town because everybody's policing each other. And it's, uh, it's like that, the emperor's new clothes thing, you know, the, the emperor's naked, but nobody wants to say that. So the South then was a perfect panopticon. Everybody's watching each other. Everybody is their own guard. And white males from that particular view don't have the free will that's oftentimes assigned to them. And, and by the way, I know that that makes some people uncomfortable. And I know that they're like, well, you know, yes, but they had all the power. So understand, I'm not saying this as a way to say, oh, you know, woe is them. Not woe is them. They certainly had more power than all the other groups. But I like to at least point this out so that that way you, you realize it's not as clean and straightforward as it might, it might seem, right? It's presented as food for thought. Okay, with everybody watching each other and policing their behaviors, that means that the conservatism that the South is known for even today uh, became entrenched at this time because really that's what that boils down to. If everybody's watching each other, there's no progress. There are no new voices. It's just people, you know, waking up every day doing the same thing and then going back to bed and then handing that down from one generation to another generation. Yes, innovations may come along on occasion. They may change slightly the face of civilization. I'm thinking of like the cotton gin, for example, this changed um, the way in which work was done for you know a period of time, but this this doesn't overhaul civilization. It's more or less the exact same. So in order to change a situation like this, you have to have an earthquake. And the earthquake comes first, the first tremor comes in the Civil War. During the American Civil War, these men um, gathered up either willingly or unwillingly. Uh, by the way, I would encourage you to read more about the American Civil War if you think everybody just grabbed a gun and, and left. Some of them did not want to leave. Some of them were hired in place of other individuals. So they, they all go off to war. That's what it amounts to. 
right? For whatever reason that they did. They go off to war and who's left in charge? Women, right? Women are, are to remain at home and they're to take care of things. Um, I know that, you know, I, I criticized Margaret Mitchell's presentation before and Gone with the Wind, but this is, this is one of the things that the novel captures well. Uh, Scarlett O'Hara is left behind. These men take off and she and other women are left in Atlanta, Terminus, however you want to call it, uh, fending for themselves. And it was very much like that across really the entire region. Uh, you know, Scarlett O'Hara mentions her mother, um, you know, before her, I don't want to say, because I want to give away spoilers, but uh, so yeah, that's one of the things that Mitchell captures well in this novel. But then the men come back afterward, the, the ones that are left, and they want to resume life and they want life to be the same. But that means that there's a generation of women now who have experienced what it's like to be in charge. Now we, we go, you know, a couple more decades down the road and we reach World War One. Same thing happens again. Now there's another generation of women and they're alive at a time when, you know, there's an uh, old generation of women who have experienced the same thing. Go a couple more years down the road, get to World War Two. Now we're you know, at a point where women's roles are super, super important, important enough that they generate um, signs and things like Rosie the Riveter and, and this, this idea that you know, women can pitch in and do things and that they can run factories while men are gone. So now we've had really by that point, three major tremors, three earthquakes, three generations of women um, who are, you know, they're not all alive at the exactly the same time, but they they're alive in proximity close enough to be able to pass some of that information down and to pass some of those attitudes and those ideas down. So that by the time we get done with World War II, women are becoming accustomed to doing some of the jobs that, that men do. And this is why over something like a, a you know less than 100 years, we see those roles shift until we get to you know really the 60s and the 70s and some of the, the attitudes that emerged during this particular time period nationwide, not just in the American South. And we see um, male roles called into question until we even get to the present. And you know again, broad brushstrokes here, but until we get to the present where um, people are starting to question some of the gender roles that have traditionally been associated with men, uh, such as men should you know, not uh, dis demonstrate emotions. Let's actually think about that just for a second. You know, traditionally across the entire American South, men were not supposed to demonstrate emotions. Um, if you're roughly the same age as, as me, you probably remember older guys who would not demonstrate emotions except for, for one emotion. And that was always anger. That was like the one emotion that uh, men could release. And this was, you know, if, if they were going to be happy, there was a sort of like slight stoicism to that so that it was always curbed. But anger was the one that could come out. And uh, people are questioning that and calling into, you know, is, is this healthy? So <laughs> I like to pin that one down because you can see we've started from men are supposed to be providers. They're supposed to do all of these you know, things with their family. They're supposed to be the head and face of the family to um, is it healthy for men to suppress their emotions in, in the way that they have been doing for many generations now. So there's there is a long journey there and it's an important journey. Uh, but that gives you some broad, broad brushstrokes that you can use to sort of understand the scope of how these roles have changed for white men. Okay, I just spent a lot of time there talking about white male gender roles. Um, I'm a little dissatisfied with how quickly I had to do that. But again, I don't have much of a choice. I'm, I'm trying to just present a broad overview here. And in all the information that I presented, I, I could not help but to bring in other groups as well. And so one of those groups was white women. Let's concentrate on them just for a moment. If white men are supposed to be the face of the world and they're supposed to you know, go out and exact you know, vengeance eye for an eye and there are these class distinctions and things like that, white women during this early time period were, uh, you know, well, let's, let's say what it is. First and above all else, they were seen as property, right? These were... Um, objects. That's what that's what men would see them as, as objects of negotiation. So one family might, you know, negotiate with another upper, uh, and we're talking again, upper class here, upper class families uh, for, you know, hey, my daughter can marry your son, and so forth and so on. And, and by the way, oftentimes that would take place with first cousins. Uh, first cousins would get married in this situation as they would in uh, England and other, other places like that, because it kept the wealth in the family. 
So um, marriage of, between first cousins was not unusual at this particular time. But again, that's because the, the woman was seen in the sense of being a kind of property because wealth, part of the wealth of the family would go with that woman. So her choices were not entirely always respected um, in, in those circumstances and the upper class circumstances because she would be used in the sense of, of again, negotiation. Um, this is one of the reasons that, by the way, jumping over to England, that there are so many novels that concentrate on these, you know, these issues of class and, and choice and um, agency on the part of women uh, being able to choose a partner and the, you know, their concerns about what their family might think and whether the family can relent. Uh, that's, that's applicable as well in the American South. Let me note as well, again, this is a very broad subject, that the Scots-Irish were not necessarily like this. They're in such a situation that um, they are dealing with one another one-on-one. -on -one. And these are smaller families and they live up you know, in these oftentimes isolated communities. And so it was a matter of courtship there. And the courtship that did take place was oftentimes raucous. And it was very um, open in, in the sense of talking about and acknowledging sex and, and i don't mean like you know birth i mean the, the interaction between male and female um and the reason is is because they had a frank acceptance of sex there's this notion that people in the past were you know somehow more virtuous and that they did not talk about sex and that you know people um that people always behave themselves and i don't think that that i know that that does not hold up to scrutiny do do a little bit of research uh, people in the past behave very much like people in the present and we can learn uh, about both periods by comparing them. Okay, so we've laid out again that that issue of class between the two. We've you know, gone ahead and addressed the the bugbear there, which is that women were treated as as objects and as property. Um, that has been discussed as well, you know, concerning the uh, Civil War and World War One and World War Two. But there are some other aspects to this as well that are complicated and that filter down to the present. Let's look at those. Okay, so what were those roles? Because a good number of them did overlap between the Scots-Irish and the English on the coast. Those roles were that women were supposed to be virtuous. They were supposed to be the spiritual guides of the household, and they were supposed to raise kids and stay at home, whereas the men would go out and be the face of the world. The men would go out and do the traveling and, and so forth and so on. There are exceptions to this. Um, you know, women are not supposed to be necessarily leaders in the community or leaders in agriculture or anything of the sort. Again, the, like one great exception I can think of is um, Eliza Lucas, who changed the face of of uh, growing uh, uh, agriculture in South Carolina, I should say, because of her um, uh, innovations with indigo and uh, her interest in indigo. But those are the exception. Generally speaking, the rule is that women are supposed to do all the things that I mentioned just a second ago. And why was this the case? Why, why does any of that matter? And it basically boils down to, um, I don't know how else to put this, let's just be blunt, the Jerry Springer show, right? Or Mari Povich or anything like that. And, you know, I, I say that sort of flippantly, but it's because on those shows these days, we're, we're so used to this idea of like, who's the father? And then they make a big to-do of it. And, you know, there's a paternity test and so forth and so on. But back then there were no such things. And so, you know, this idea that another male could creep into a household and, you know, impregnate a woman and then that some illegitimate child would grow up in that household and then get access to all of the household's you know, resources and, and riches, that was the kind of idea that would keep white men awake at night. And so this, this sense that women are supposed to be virtuous and that they're supposed to save themselves and that they're supposed to, um, you know, be the spiritual guides is a, a way of framing their roles so that that way they do not find themselves in danger of, of um, uh, being compromised is the way that it would have been seen. From that perspective, then, again, they they do not have access to larger society without a chaperone. Um, they do not have access to other locations necessarily without, uh, you know, some sense of of, um, of of safety, of a safety net in, in those situations. So they're very carefully watched, which paradoxically means that oftentimes these women were quite lonely. 
they were in a cutthroat society that other people were watching them as well. There's this, you know, that sense of a panopticon there as well. Women are, you know, watching one another and who's, who's interested in the other person and who's going to marry what other person and, you know, how are the family fortunes going to play out and so forth and so on. And uh, that again, led many of them to be uh, quite lonely. That plays into the present, and we can see that in the present with white female roles. Um, one of the challenges I present to students is think of any movie that is based on um, Southern uh, female white characters that are loud and outspoken and that, um, you know, that are not necessarily part of a family. They're just loud and outspoken and that they you know, will not be pushed around. And it's difficult for people to do. I mean, there are some characters like that. Um, you know, they, they pop up from time to time in, in certain movies. But generally speaking, when women uh, fight back, it's oftentimes seen as a tragedy. I'm thinking back to, and this is not, you know, Southern culture, but it, it's kind of close because it uh, it deals with some of the same, deals with some of the same issues uh, that Southern culture deals with. I'm thinking of Thelma and Louise. Right, Thelma and Louise stood up for themselves, and they they fought back, and they, oftentimes against um, a domineering white male power that manifested in several different ways in that movie. And uh, the only way that this could play out, as the, the you know one of the main characters on the the side of the cops could sort of foresee, is in a tragic way. And um, so this hits that white females who do stand up and speak for themselves are the anomaly, and that it, it can only end in tragedy. I think shows um, how very much these roles have not changed that much um, over the years and how we're just now adapting to those circumstances. Now, with all of that being said, just a couple of minutes ago, I observed that, you know, there's this question now of should white males uh, you know, repress their emotions? Now, let's, let's fairly look at where white female roles are today. Uh, there are a number of white females who will go out hunting with their families. And a couple of generations back, that would have been unthinkable or unheard of. This was not an activity that women were supposed to participate in. Uh, fairly recently, I'd say a decade or more ago, there was this concept that came out for a while. There were bumper stickers and things like that here in the South of uh, grits, girls raised in the South. And this was a sort of empowering alternative to the Southern Belle. Southern Belle, by the way, being the ultimate uh, example of a woman as an object, right? This was uh, a woman who was just supposed to be seen and who was supposed to be pretty and uh, not really thought of in terms of her agency or her ability to interact with other other things. Um, by the way, Scarlett over here, again, great example of this. She, she just wanted to be that and she was forced into other roles uh, through her you know, living through the period of the American Civil War. Uh, so, yeah, the, you know, the sense of grits of, of girls going out and shooting guns and getting on four wheelers and doing things that were traditionally seen as male activities, that adjustment has taken place in recent years. And uh, you know, women have become empowered in this region and uh, their voices have grown as part of that region. But I, again, still, I would draw your attention to the fact that this is an ongoing process that we're, we're seeing in the present and that. Uh, there has been some reluctance to that. You've, you know, you do hear of people in the American South, uh, women who will say, you know, no, I want to be a traditional wife. I want to stay home and I want to raise kids. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. That's fantastic, you know. But I, I would say, you know, why can't we have all of these different roles? I mean, that's really where things seem to be going. And um, and I and I, I say that because in inside of the class that. Um, that this podcast is coming from, there's a board, um, usually, unless this is the summer version, there's a board where people can talk about you know, how they manifest their own gender roles. And that's what a, a number of people talk about is, you know, the expectation is for me to go out and to do all of these things. And I don't want to, I want to stay at home and you know, um, be a wife and raise kids. Or um, the expectation is that I'm supposed to stay home and, you know, raise kids. And I don't want to do that. I want to go out and you know, live my life. And then again, if you throw in and this applies to all the groups, if you throw in human sexuality as well, then that further complicates and compounds things, especially with this sort of conservative attitudes about um, uh, gender roles, traditional gender roles, that, uh, that are still prevalent across the entire region to today.
By the way, <laughs> this is a great time to pause and say that's why we spent all that time studying the difference between sex and gender, because once you understand that distinction and you start to see gender roles and you know, expectations and things for, uh, for how gender should manifest, you can see that in the culture around you and you can see that as a part of your society. And that's why this terminology is so useful because now we can have a conversation like this. Okay, let's uh, let's pause here. Before I jump forward, you know, I, I guess I, I do want to say one more thing. And that is that uh, this sexual agency is another important aspect of this conversation. Um, and that has changed in recent years too. Uh, the reason that I'm thinking of this right now is because of people like Kate Chopin. And I had mentioned her in one of the prior podcasts, but that's that's certainly part of this conversation as well. Um, white females were not traditionally seen to have much agency in terms of, of picking partners. And that's that's something that, you know, again, I, I mentioned just a second ago, but I want to draw attention back to you because it's going to become a part of the conversation here in just a second. Now we reach what I would say is the most difficult part of this conversation. Um, and it's difficult for several different reasons. Uh, all of the things that I'm about to start into are, are you know, quite difficult to talk about. Uh, there's that word again. But uh, also at the same time, this is by necessity going to be a shorter part of this podcast. And that is because we are about to launch into really four straight episodes of race. And a good deal of the information that I would cover and this, this part of the podcast is going to be covered in that section. So if you, you know, if you get to this part and you're like, wait a minute, there's not much time left in this episode, what is he going to do? Uh, again, part of that is because it's going to be put off and discussed in the future. But let's look, launch into talking about black male gender roles prior to the, um, the Civil War, because that, that's, again, a good breaking point because of the earthquake that that, that represents. These roles um, are very difficult to talk about for for several reasons here. One, we don't have many records because, let's face it, the people keeping records were, you know, white people, specifically white males, and they did not necessarily see it as worth their time to record this information. So the information that we do have comes oftentimes from slave narratives, um, people like Frederick Douglass who were writing about their own lived experiences. And Frederick Douglass does talk about, um, you know, without being aware of this terminology, because it's a more recent sort of in, um, innovation, I should call it. He does talk about what does it mean to be a black man and what does it mean to be a man? And he declares at one point in his fight with Covey that he decided that he was going to be a man and that he was going to stand up for them himself. And I think that that's a great way to capture this conversation because quite frankly and bluntly, black men were not treated like men or even human beings. They were demeaned through language. Um, the language that was used you know, could be, I mean, something that seems as simple as, uh, as calling them boy or uncle, even if they were older than the person speaking. But that language is used in order to demean them, in order to put them into a, a, an inferior place. So again, going back to these labels, sex and gender, and you know, gender being the way in which sex manifests in the world, there is a, a, an overall um, effort on the part of, of white people to keep black men from feeling like men. Right, they would be given emasculating work, for example, when they got older. Um, they weren't allowed to make choices about their family. They weren't necessarily allowed to make um, lasting choices about their partners. Sometimes they were. I mean, again, there are exceptions to everything, but very frequently they were not. So if they married a woman or if they were interested in a woman and, and that person, you know, was not approved as a, as a partner for some reason by a, a white individual. Um, they had no choice but to to not marry that that person. Uh, a really good example of this is in Harriet Jacobs' autobiography. She mentions that she found a partner that she was interested in, and her owner would not allow them to marry. He he said some very unkind things that you know make me dislike him. Uh, there are many reasons I don't like him, but you know this is one of those cases. Um, and so she was not allowed to marry, and that's uh, again picking partners, making decisions, making decisions about a family, standing up for your partner. Um, none of those were inside the purview of 
black males at the time. So they were not allowed to be men. They were not allowed to see themselves as men. They were, uh, there was a concerted effort to keep them from seeing themselves in that way um, due to you know, the fear of slave uprisings, uh, such as the Stoner Rebellion or the Nat Turner Rebellion. Okay, that's uh, again fairly short, but that covers basically up until the American Civil War. Again, these are you know, people who just do not have rights. So let's look at after the American Civil War. Okay, we get to the American Civil War, and there's this earthquake, and then yeah, everything's okay, and everybody's you know free, and, and not, I mean not really. All of that's sarcastic. The, nothing changed overnight. Nothing just you know shifted from one state of things into another state of things. It was a process and it is still a process that I, and I know this is hard for people to imagine that's still going on well over 150 years later, that it is still something that affects the present. Um, if you, you know, if you're like, oh, how could things in the past affect the present? I want to encourage you go and look at language. I mean, language changes somewhat slowly, but definitely words that were invented at this time um, are applicable and used today as well. So yes, the past has a, a, an influence on the present, even if we can't necessarily see it. And that is the purpose of studying history is to become more aware of how that past influences our present. So the Civil War comes along, things don't immediately change. Um, there are certain freedoms that are granted and they do take place and the the North occupies the South for a time and you know it goes about ensuring that those things change, but then the North eventually leaves and uh, the South is left to its own devices and it goes back to some of its old habits, um, which become even worse. And we'll look at that when we get again to the section on race. But with that framework in mind, now you can, I, I hope, appreciate the problem. And the problem is this, if there's this concept of what men are, right? Men by necessity, by gender role are supposed to be the people who make decisions, the people who are responsible for the family, the people who are the face of the world, uh, the face of the family to the world. If you are an African-American male and that is what men are, that's what white men are, right? So how do you go about manifesting your particular identity? What does it mean? What I mean, what does your identity mean? And uh, I would call your attention back to the literature podcast, the, the, that particular episode, because that was something that I mentioned. I mentioned that um, oftentimes uh, people inside of this community struggled with that sense of identity and they would struggle with it through art and they would try to you know, reconcile like, okay, what does it mean to be African? Like, I, I mean, I don't have those traditions any longer. I don't have that language. What does it mean to be speaking somebody's language that, you know, the, uh, for a language that doesn't belong to me, the language of people who enslaved my ancestors? What does that mean? How do I reconcile these things? And those are very real ideas. And again, that that crisis of identity that comes from okay, well, if I if I want to be a man, then I you know I have to act like basically white people act. And I mean, what does that mean? How am I supposed to be doing this thing that uh, you know white people expect? Because you know my I mean, within living memory at that moment after the American Civil War, people remember, people know, right? These are people that enslaved you know, my, my father, my grandfather and my great grandfather and so forth and so on. Um, how am I supposed to reconcile the sense of, you know, being in their, their uh, view of this identity versus, you know, what they want to see themselves as. Okay. I, I've just said all of that, but let's also frame this a different way. The other way we can look at this is that the again the larger society and culture itself did not want to offer the same identity opportunities to these individuals so let's assume that they they did decide that they were going to make decisions and be the face of the family um that was not necessarily recognized by the larger white population and that becomes its own problem that means that these individuals are excluded from the larger culture and many of the opportunities that would be given um you know unhes unhesitatingly to white individuals, such as um, employment, uh, freedoms, voting rights, things of that sort that you know, guarantee citizenship and acknowledgement of being males. And so those opportunities are, are withheld. And so this culture then of, of uh, sort of fighting back against the larger population of the, the disenfranchisement and the, the unfairness of those situations begins to manifest across you know, the, the African-American community 
at this time. So we could see those ideas in you know an author like Richard Wright's and his his work Black Boy, right? He talks about some of the unfair quality. He talks about um, not being given the same opportunities and becoming aware of of this. Um, this disparate nature between his opportunities and those of white people. We see it as well in you know, somebody like Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, where he discusses uh, the, the way in which the larger white culture takes advantage of the black culture at this time. So that is one way in which gender roles become problematic. Like, what does it mean, again, to be a black man and to try to act like a man? Because now... You know, you're, you're behaving in a way that white people behave. What does it mean to be authentic in, in this particular way? What does it mean to, you know, to trace um, into the past and, and to find some of these ideas and then to bring them into the present? Is there a way to do that and to, uh, to manifest that in, a, in, in certain ways? Okay, and that brings us really up to the present. And this is an ongoing dialogue. Um, it, it's an evolving thing that we're dealing with even right now. Um, I would highly recommend Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, because it, it does tackle to this to some degree. She doesn't directly talk about gender, but she certainly is talking about the way in which uh, black men are treated in the present. There's, um, as she points out, this tendency for police to arrest black men um, on the slightest suspicion, sometimes even without the slightest suspicion, and then to process them into the system. And so there's this sort of expectation for many black men to to just become incarcerated and to become part of that that larger police system, even when they haven't they haven't done anything at all. And uh, again, I, I can't possibly do Michelle Alexander's book justice here um, right now at this moment in this podcast. But I want to highly encourage you because that's really um, the central issue that we are facing right now as the culture of the South. Okay, let's put that to the side. I'm trying not to say too much because I, I realize I'm getting too far into the uh, what I intend to do in the race section. But I at least want to give you, you know, an overview in the same way that I did with, you know, the other groups. Okay, and this brings me to the last group that I want to discuss, and that would be, of course, black females. A lot of the issues that I talked about just a second ago with black males are issues that affect them as well. What does it mean to be a woman? Uh, should they adapt to the same circumstances or the same expectations that white women have? And the answer here is, is actually, I would say, a little bit simpler than uh, with black men, because black men are you know, attempting to uh, move into positions of power, whereas to this point, black women have been in something of a unique position out of the four main groups that we're, we're talking about here. And that is that they have been equal to the men prior to the American Civil War. Right, they're expected to do a lot of the exact same work—to go out and work in fields, to, um, you know, to to work alongside them while bearing children and everything else. And so, from that perspective, once we reach—I'm going to jump forward and then come back again—but once we reach the American Civil War, and they gain their their freedom, they don't want to become your subjects of black men. They don't want you know they they don't want to give up the power that they already have because they are on equal footing with um, with black men, right? So they, they don't want to go back from that. So prior to the American Civil War, then, um, this is, again, one of those paradoxes. They they sometimes had opportunities that black men did not have, which, such as working inside the house. Um, again, older black men sometimes worked inside the house, but de definitely the women did. And that meant sometimes they had access to the white women and white women, as I mentioned just a couple of minutes ago, were sometimes lonely, not all the time. Sometimes they were quite ruthless. And I'm thinking again of the, the Flints and uh, Harriet Jacobs and, and some other presentations of, of you know women in that way. But sometimes they were lonely because they were put on this pedestal and they weren't you know, really allowed to talk. And there was always this sort of dance, this social dance going on of everybody judging everybody. And so sometimes that interaction could lead to um, a kind of access to, you know, the, the, the ear of a sympathetic white person. But that's, that's stretching it just slightly because this is, again, something of an exception, not the rule. The rule, generally speaking, was that um, white culture did not consider black culture um, as something of, that needed to be respected. So that, that is stretching that slightly. But let's look at some other aspects. Uh, black women did have 
more agency to pick their own partners than did white women because they're you know they they don't have power which in and of itself neither did the black men so that means that they they can pick their partner um in that way and if they want to get divorced they can just simply get divorced because you know the the church and white culture you know the legal system is not going to recognize that marriage in the first place so they they have some things that you know white white women do not have but on the other hand that's i'm putting out the like the kind of benign part let's talk about the awful awful part they were frequently the target of rape by white males and this is mentioned in as far as i can think of and really i'm I'm trying to think of it off the top of my head somewhat but this is mentioned in, in basically every slave narrative i've ever read or encountered uh harry jacobs certainly talked about it she she made it a point to you know point these things out uh frederick Douglass talked about it as well and it, it's just something that recurs over and over and over to the point where um even looking at uh, tony morrison's beloved which is based on a true story. Yes, the true story was that a a, um, a black woman attempted to kill her kids in order to keep them from having to go into slavery. You know, this was an act of love on her part. And I know that sounds twisted, but it's an act of love because she did not want them to suffer. And sort of in the background of that is one kind of suffering is that um, that you know the the female children could be potentially raped by white men. So that you know, on the one hand, yes. You know, these women are allowed to perhaps pick partners and, and you know, marry them or not marry them or divorce them or, or what have you. Uh, but on the other hand, they are very frequently the target of sexual aggression on the part of white men who have all the power and there's nobody there to stop them. The, the legal system isn't going to do anything. The church isn't going to do anything. The white women themselves can't do anything. Um, oftentimes they blame the victims, as we can see with the Flints. Um, and I keep saying Flints, but I mean, you know, the, the people as Harry Jacobs called him in her work, and um, um, Dr. Flint's wife targeted Jacobs herself and thought that she had seduced her husband, which is really just a way of saying, I can't blame my husband, and so I'm blaming the only person who has less power than I do in this situation. That's what that boils down to. Okay, so that's that's a little bit of background prior to the American Civil War. Again, it's sort of a, a mixed bag of, of rights and, and, and not, you know, a lack of power and, and victimization and a lot of very terrible things again that we're going to talk about more when we get to the section on race let's look at uh, after the american civil war okay let's talk about these roles after the american civil war um i'm going to try to make this brief again because i'm going to cover a lot of it in the race section but uh families at this time the black families uh, the, the roles for uh black women at this time were far more tenuous than in the case of of white individuals. And the reason is, is because if families were somewhat impermanent prior to the American Civil War due to the lack of power to be able to keep them together, those that those concepts and those roles endured after the American Civil War as well, especially due to things like the Black Codes. If you had uh, you know, a, a male in the household and then the male went out and got a job, um, that male could be arrested on the spot and then put into essentially, a, I mean, what was a chain gang uh, and just disappear off the face of the planet. And so this left households without uh, male figures in the households. We see this, you know, through many different accounts. Uh, Richard Wright talks about it in his account. Uh, Maya Angelou talks about it in "I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings." We also see Malcolm X discuss it somewhat. Um, his father was there, and then his father wasn't there, and so you know, he and his siblings were uh, raised by their mother. That that does persist, and there are again many many different reasons for that that we'll we'll cover more thoroughly when we get to the section on race. It does boil down to though a lack of power, um, a lack of respect uh, from the legal system and from really society at large for these relationships, and then you know the lack of opportunities and the the sort of dynamic of the social and gender roles that were handed down prior to the American Civil War and to the the post-American Civil War um, era. One thing I, I do want to say, though, and that I want to point out, because I made a big deal out of this a little while ago with uh, Thelma and Louise, is now I want you to think about um, how many movies have strong Black female characters. And it should be pretty easy for you to think of several of those. And again, the reason is this because prior to the American Civil War, these women are on equal footing with 
men. And after the American Civil War, they did not want to give up that power. And, you know, unfortunately, that has some of the backlash that I just alluded to a second ago. But it also means that uh, there are these these gender roles that are seen and well recognized today that we don't have necessarily a, a kind of analog in the white female community. Uh, so, you know, I I always point to the character of Medea. Yes, I you know, I know this is not an actual female. I know that that's Tyler Perry, but that that archetype, the one that's manifested in those movies, um, illustrates exactly the point that I'm making here, which is that that is a recognized archetype, and that's the whole reason. It traces back to to prior to the American Civil War. What are the things that this this group is facing today? It goes back again to Michelle Alexander's book and the one uh, the things that I mentioned just a second ago. If uh, black men are being incarcerated, then that means that families um, ha- are sometimes uh, single parent households where a, a female is raising the entire family herself because of the, um, the sort of system that incarcerates these other individuals. Um, again, Michelle Alexander does a far better job of uh, than I can do right now. But I at least want to point to this because when we get to the race section, I'm going to make an argument about that, about why uh, this still affects the present. And I at least need to set out a little bit of groundwork right here. Again, I'm keeping this necessarily short since we're going to more thoroughly cover that when we get to the race section. But for right now, I just want to give this, this, this broad overview, okay, as some food for thought. So this episode went really, really long, and I can't believe I started by saying, oh, I like to try to keep it to 25 or 30 minutes, and I've gone as long as I have. But there's a lot of information to cover, and there are entire textbooks written about what I'm trying to do, again, in a short period of time. So I hope that as you've been you know, listening to this with me, that this has given you some food for thought, and it's given you an overview of each of these groups, uh, and that you can apply this information to some of the other things that we've studied as well. Again, Richard writes, the man who is almost a man, I hope now you can appreciate that story in new and different ways that you can see some of the content that we've been discussing uh, manifested. Why does Dave want to be a man? Yes, it is a, a matter of wanting to be a man, but it's also a matter of wanting to be seen as a man, as a black man. Um, this is, you know, if you pay attention to some of the things that the white characters are doing around him, you can see some of the, the you know, ridicule and the lack of, of taking him very seriously that I've mentioned inside this podcast. Um, You can see his anger and resentment at not being taken seriously in the end of the story. Um, And you can perhaps understand why at the end of the story he chooses to run away. It's because um, he doesn't feel that he's being taken seriously. He doesn't feel that um, even with a gun, that his his dream to be seen as a man has been uh, taken in a way that he, he wishes it could be by all of those around him. Okay, we will pick up with uh, the next episode will be about, again, race. And I'm going to start by discussing Randall Keenan's Where Am I Black? So if you have access to that story, please read it and then we'll come back and, and talk about it. See you then. <laughs>